Good evening, everybody. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to be together tonight, that we get to study your word, that we get to think about um, what your word teaches about who you are and who we are and what you require of us. And we pray that you would um, give us wisdom as we study. Open our eyes that we might behold wonders from your word so that we might change to become more like Jesus and glorify him. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right. So tonight we begin the third and final oracle of the, the book of Micah. So it's this third prophetic speech. Again, the the cycles of judgment and salvation. So we're back into the, to talking about God's judgment on his people uh, after we spent the last couple weeks talking about uh, this big middle section of the book of Micah in chapters 4 and 5 where he's talking about God's uh, future salvation. Despite the, the present judgment, God is going to, in the future, he's going to, to uh, raise up this, this king, this shepherd king, and... and uh, it's going to set everything right. In the third oracle, we come back to uh, sort of the, the present day, uh, in terms of Micah's present day, to talk again about this judgment that God is bringing on his people. What's interesting about this section is that in, in the first oracle, you have judgment being uh, directed um, at uh, sort of the, the nations as the nations, the, at Samaria and at Jerusalem. It's this, the whole country, everybody, uh, but, but sort of this um, kind of this national or, or political entity. And then in, uh, in the second oracle in chapter 3, the judgment is really directed at the leaders, very specifically the leaders of Judah. So it's Israel and Judah in, in chapter uh, 1. It's the leaders of Judah in chapter 3. Here, it's not just uh, the leaders. Here we see that this is actually something that's infecting all of the people. That the uh, being um, uh, unfaithful to the covenant is something that not only marks the leaders, not only marks sort of the nation as a whole, but it marks the the people themselves. They're not innocent victims. So if you remember, we, we talked about, uh, in the very first time we were together, we talked about how the prophets are like covenant lawyers, right? They're like prosecutors, and, and they are uh, employed by God to prosecute his people according to the law, according to the covenant. And so, very clearly, in the, the section we're looking at today, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, it's, it's Micah acting as this prosecutor, laying out God's case against his people. And then, in the, next week, we'll look at the, the next two sections in this, kind of this big judgment section, where uh, God announces uh, this, the judgment that's coming, and then laments the, the corruption of his people that's leading to this Judgment. So, but, um, chapter six, verses one to eight, is laying out the case against God's people. Um, as I as I work through this, you know, each of these 
three sections in, in the judgment section of, of the third oracle is um, around the same number of verses, eight verses, seven verses, seven verses. And, uh, but that's kind of where they break. And so I was going to have to pick what one of these studies was going to be shorter than the other. So next week we're going to do double the amount of verses. Why are you laughing? <laughs> this week we're doing eight verses, which I'm sure makes you think, oh, great, we'll be, we'll be done faster and have more time to talk. Well, we'll see. I'd like to be able to say, oh, sure, it'll be a little bit shorter, but experience would tell you that's probably not the case. Uh, so we'll see what happens. All right. So here's uh, verses, verses 1 to 8. Kind of the the, uh, the zoomed in outline. Uh, verses one and two are are the the introduction to this lawsuit, uh, and the and the language that that's being used is very much legal courtroom language. So we're intended to view this like a prosecution. Um, that's the that's the way that that Micah is presenting itself. In fact, the beginning of Micah six is if you if you were to go and look at a book on how to study the Bible, and you were reading about how to study the minor prophets and some of the things in the minor prophets, and they talked about this idea of the lawsuit. This is probably the text they would go to. This is like the textbook example of the prophet uh, acting in, in this kind of legal fashion. So verses one and two is the the sort of the the opening of this courtroom scene. And then verses three to eight is God, uh, in a sense, questioning the defendant, or Micah, uh, on God's behalf, questioning the defendant, that is the people of Israel. So verse three, he'll, he'll ask these questions. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Uh, and then sort of... Uh, answers the questions when the people are silent, because they, they, they can't answer the questions, they can't make excuses, answers those questions in the next couple sections. So verses four and five sort of answer that first question, what have I, what have I done to you or what have I done for you? And verses six to eight answer, uh, well, I'll explain how that answers, uh, how have I wearied you as we get there. So, first, verses 1 and 2, this is the beginning of the lawsuit. Hear now what the Lord is saying. So again, here, this is the same word that begins uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 1. So here we're at the beginning of this next oracle. Hear, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Uh, the first question I think we have to ask is, who's he talking to? And there's some debate over it. And in fact, if you have different translations, the translations may indicate something different. So he's commanding somebody to arise, so stand up and to plead their case. And the, there are two options, basically. It's either one He's talking to Micah. He's telling Micah, stand up and start arguing the case. Or he's talking to the people of Israel and basically calling them into the courtroom, say, all right, arise, see if you can 
What, what are you going to say in response to this, this case I have against you? Let me hear it. Let me hear your defense. Um, I, I think he's probably talking to Micah, telling Micah to arise and argue the case, uh, because right afterwards, he tells the mountains, said, listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. And so maybe what is, uh, what is, being, uh, what is being said in verse 1 this pleading the case, the mountains will hear, and it's the indictment of the Lord. So I think it's Micah acting as this prosecutor who is supposed to be announcing God's indictment against the people. He says, listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. So you see this clear legal language. God has an indictment. Uh, he has a case against his people. This, this is actually the same word uh, in Hebrew. And with Israel, he's going to dispute another sort of legal term. It's introducing, I have a, I have a court case against my people. They've They've sinned, they've broken the law, they've broken the covenant, and so I am prosecuting them. So why, why does he mention the mountains, the hills, the mountains, the enduring foundations of the earth? What, why are they a part of this? Well, so Mike is supposed to plead his case before the mountains. The hills are going to hear his voice. The mountains are going to listen. The enduring foundations of the earth are going to listen. So they're like, it's like God is calling all of creation to witness this case. He's calling all of creation to be a witness, not just to the, to the, uh, to the prosecution, not just sitting in sort of the gallery, but maybe even to be a part of the witness against his people. Uh, you see this in places like um, Deuteronomy 4, what is it, 26, and Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, um, where Moses, uh, in speaking to the people as they're making this covenant, says, Today I call heaven and earth to be a witness against you. Basically, says, we're making a covenant with you. I, God is making a covenant with you, with us. And heaven and earth are the witnesses of this covenant being made so that in the future, if you break it, they will bear witness against you. There's a sense in which looking at the creation, the mountains, the foundations of the earth, you're looking at the, the most solid things in creation, at least from, from the perspective of the people who are who are hearing this, and so these things endure. The mountains were there when the covenant was made. They're still there, and they can say, yeah, we were there, and we saw this happen. So now, let's not, we don't want to take this too far. This is metaphorical, right? He's not actually imagining the mountains are going to, are going to talk, but he's saying the, the Israel has, no, has nowhere to hide. 
even the creation itself can bear witness against them. Um, you think about this in comparison to something that Jesus said, right? When, when the people are praising him and they're, um, some of them are trying to say, no, stop, you know, stop doing that. And he says, if these don't do it, the very rocks will cry out, right? So he opens this case. So you got this courtroom setting. So you have creation called to, to bear witness. Mike is the prosecutor. The people are in the dock. Then he starts questioning his people. Verse 3 opens these, these questions. My people. What's interesting here is oftentimes when, when God is expressing um, his, his anger or his, his wrath against his people, he calls them this people, right? Or you people. Uh, sort of distancing himself from, from them. Here he says, my people. He's highlighting you belong to me. My people. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. See, God, it's this very emotional uh, appeal. That God is... Um, Responding like in, in other places in the prophets where it talks about God responding like, uh, like a husband who's been cheated on by his adulterous wife. It's like, what, what have I done to you? In the, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, so Jeremiah 2, 5, there's something very similar where God says to the people, he says, what, what fault did your fathers find in me? that they went after worthless things and became worthless. You just imagine God saying, what, what was it that they didn't like about me? What was it that, that made them go after all of these false gods? And so what, what have I done to you? That is, what have I done that's, that's caused you to be driven away to break this covenant? And how have I, how have I wearied you? That is uh, wearied, or, or uh, this can also be uh, translated as burdened. How have I burdened you, or how have I, how have I exhausted you? Um, and so it, it's almost as if he's, he's sort of repeating back the questions that the people are, are asking at the time, like, oh, well, what's God done for us lately? Right? You imagine they're, they're under siege by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom has been taken into exile. They're like, what's God, what's God done for us lately? What's he, what's he doing? Not realizing that, of course, that is judgment that's being brought on them for their sin. And then, how have I wearied you being, you know, oh, God's, God's requirements of us are such a burden. We're wearied of doing what he asks. We don't, we don't want to do it. We want to do things our way. It doesn't say this, but it seems, based on the subsequent verses, that my guess the people are, are just not remembering what God actually had done for them, right? Rather, they're thinking about what God has done, at least in their minds, to harm them. Sort of like the way that when, when the people get led out into the, into the wilderness, 
with Moses. And they, they don't get a few days beyond having gone across the Red Sea. And they're saying, why did Moses bring us out here to die? We hate this food you have for us. Why We don't have anything. If only we were back in Egypt where we had things good. You're like, do you guys, are you remembering the same thing? What about the part where you walked across the bottom of the ocean? Do you, do you remember this? But you know, we can read that and think, man, these people are foolish, but we do the same thing, right? We really, really easily forget what God has done for us. So they're claiming to be burdened by what God requires. They're, they're not remembering what God has done. It's more of the, what have you done for me lately? So then in the, the next two sections, so verse 4, Verse 5 is one section. The verses 6 to 8 is the other section. God's going to, to answer the question uh, himself, right? He commands, or he, he calls on, on the people. He says, answer me. Now, uh, either the people are silent and can't answer him uh, because there's nothing they can say, uh, or this is rhetorical, and it's, and it's um, basically God saying something like, uh, how have I wearied you? You can't answer me, can you? So verses 4 and 5, he's going he's gonna to remind them not what he's done to them, but what he's done for them. It says, indeed... I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Um, the, uh, the word wearied and the word brought, or I brought and I wearied, actually sound really similar in Hebrew. Um, so it's sort of like it's sort of like a rhyme, in a sense. And so, um, I don't know that there's a really good way of of trying to say it in English, other than to say it with, with maybe alliteration. Like you say, I've burdened you. No, I brought you. Um, but it's it's even closer than that. Uh, so it's we're intended to kind of read those lines together to show this is very very different. What God has done for His people. He's not done things to them. He's not wearied them. In fact, this is what he's done. He brought them from the land of Egypt. He ransomed them from the house of slavery. He sent before them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Throughout the Old Testament, when God wants to remind people of, of who he is, of what he's done, of his love for his people and his faithfulness to his covenant, he's always going back to the Exodus. The Exodus is like Israel's birthday. Um, it's it's the place where God creates this, this nation and brings them out and buys them for himself. He always goes back to the Exodus. Certainly, go back beyond that to the covenants that he made with the patriarchs, but the Exodus is what the prophets keep going back to over and over and over again. It's like, you want to know what I've done for you? Don't you remember this? And he says... Again, my people. Remember now 
He commands them to remember what he's done. Remember now. Remember what? What Balak, king of Moab, counseled. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So he picks out some specific incidents from Israel's past. So if, if verse 4 talks about, that's the big one, right? The Exodus is the big one that you go back to. Um, it's the one that, that they had a, had a memorial event for, right? They had the Passover. The Passover is said, okay, you're going to do this every year. Why? So that your kids remember that you guys don't forget that this is what happened. Now he picks out a couple other um, incidents from, from Israel's past to, to demonstrate that he has indeed been faithful to them, uh, oftentimes in spite of their faithlessness. So now we have uh, sort of the advantage of having just gone through numbers fairly recently. So see if you guys remember some of this. Remember uh, Balak, king of Moab. So this is getting towards the end of the time in the wilderness. And this is, so we're in Numbers 22. Moab right across the, the Jordan River from, uh, from Judah. So they're, they're in Moab. And Balak doesn't like it so much. And so he, he hires Balaam to uh, curse uh, Israel. Of course, Balaam, uh, we see in, this then is in Numbers 23. You know, Balaam is saying, well, I can't curse those whom God has not cursed. And then you have this big back and forth on uh, how come Balaam can't curse the people. And he ends up pronouncing blessing on them. Now, at the time that this is going on, it's not like Israel, that they're all on their knees in the camp praying, right? They're, they're just as sinful as ever, and yet totally, like, for the people in the camp, totally outside of their knowledge, now we have the knowledge because we're reading the book of Numbers sort of a bird's eye view, but beyond the knowledge of the people in Israel's camp, God is, God is protecting them. In fact, he's blessing them as people are trying to curse them. They have no idea. Now, the people know about this because they have the story and saying, God's saying, do you remember? Do you remember what I did? It's not like you guys were being especially pious at the time, and yet I was still faithful. You remember what, what they tried to do and what, what I did. And then uh, from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is, is uh, one of the last places that Israel encamps outside the promised land. It's in Numbers 25. And this is actually, this is the place where um, the, uh, the, the Moabite women try to come in to seduce the Israelite men and get them to be disobedient. And that starts to happen and God's anger burns against the people. And then you have uh, Phineas come up with his spear and he skewers two people through. It's a great story. You should go back and read it. Um, so, but, so Shittim is, is this place. Israel's encamped there, but it's another place where Israel's failing. And the only thing that saves them is that this guy Phineas 
rises up in his zeal for the Lord and he ends up averting the wrath of God from consuming them. Gilgal is on the other side of the Jordan. Gilgal is the first place they, they set up camp in the promised land. So when they crossed over the Jordan in, in, uh, in Joshua 4, God commands them to take up these stones from, uh, from the riverbed and to set them up on the other side as a reminder of what God has done. That he's caused them to come into the promised land uh, very much the same way they exited Egypt while he holds the waters back. And Gilgal is the place where they set up this, this monument. So saying, I, I took you from Shittim, from this, this low point where my, my anger, my holiness almost destroyed you to Gilgal, showing you that I'm faithful to my covenant even when you're being faithless. Right? And I did all this so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So you might, I did this so you would know that what I do is right. Righteous acts of the Lord can uh, can also be sort of a shorthand for the, um, what God has done to be uh, faithful to the covenant and to, to save and to bless his people. I did this so you would, you would know these things. You are sitting there saying that I, I can't be trusted. You know, what's God done for us lately? Have you forgotten all of this stuff that I did for you? Then he moves on and he maybe answers the, the question, uh, how have I wearied you? So if the, the people are saying God's requirements are too burdensome, we don't want to do that. We want to do our thing. God says, well, if this is what I've done for you in verses 4 and 5, how are you to respond What exactly is it that you ought to respond with? Um, these verses, particularly verses um, 6 and 7, but kind of all of them put together, uh, can get misunderstood in a couple ways. Now, it, if th- there are two verses that you would probably know from Micah, even if you didn't um, study it. Uh, Micah 5.2, which is the, the king who's going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 6, 8, this is another popular one. He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. So people can misunderstand this, this set of verses in a couple ways. Um, because in verses 6 and 7, God's going to be uh, critical of the outward performance of religion in his people. So some people think verses 6 to 8 mean that kind of the, the outward things in religion, worship and, and things like that, that that's not really important as long as you have the, the inward, the right inward disposition. You don't need to do outward stuff. You need to, oh, as long as you do justice and love kindness and say you walk humbly with God, you don't really need to go to church, that kind of thing. Other people think that verses 6 and 7 mean that God doesn't really care about sacrifice. That's one of the things he's going to talk about is, well, is, is God, does God really want the sacrifices? Is that the point? It's going to say, oh, see, God's saying, I never wanted sacrifices. Um, I just, 
I just want you to care for other people. That's what I really want. I think both of those are wrong. Because I think both of them are seeking to develop kind of a whole theology of how you relate to God and what God wants only from these verses and not from the rest of Scripture. And so we need to be careful anytime we come to study the Bible that we're comparing Scripture with Scripture. So we're comparing uh, what God says here with what he says elsewhere. And if it appears to us that they contradict, then we have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, what's really going on here? Because they don't contradict. So let's look at this. With what shall I come to the Lord? So that the, the speaker has changed. So in verses 4 and 5, it's like God talking to the people. Uh, verses 6 to 8, it's more like it's Micah talking, sort of as the representative uh, of the people. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? So how am I supposed to come to God? What is it that, that he wants? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Uh, if you look at um, Leviticus 9.3, you see that these uh, burnt offerings, and particularly the, the yearling or year-old calves, these are the most valuable offerings that you can make. It's the highest quality uh, of an offering that you can that you can make, and the burnt offering is the one that gets totally consumed. So all of it's gone. So shall I come to a burnt offerings with yearling calves? Does God, does God want the, the greatest quality offering? Does he want the highest quality meat for the sacrifice? I think the implied answer is no. Okay, so he doesn't want the greatest quality. So does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams or in 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, I think the implied answer is no, but here he's moving from quality to quantity. Okay, if he doesn't want just the, the yearling calf, if that's not enough, what if I gave him thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil. This is all hyperbolic. This is, this is, what if I gave him as much as I possibly could? Now, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon sacrificed thousands and thousands and thousands of, of animals. But that was like a one-time deal. For the, the average person, um, this is, it's almost like saying, can I, can I give God a gazillion dollars? Like, it doesn't make, it, it, it's, a, it's an astronomical, well, gazillion isn't even a real thing, but I don't think. But, um, you know, Googleplex, you guys know Googleplex? You, you Google, but it's not a, it's not a, a theater. It's uh, a really big number. Steve Spronk told me that, so you can take it up with it. I don't know if that's actually true, but he's smart, so we'll go with it. So it's like, it's like saying, um, if I could, I could bring uh, more than I could possibly count, would that be enough for God? Is that what he wants in, in return? He says, no, that's, that's not what it is. Okay. Well, shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So here we get this idea that the people recognize that there's something that they have to do because of their sin. 
right? And now they're asking, well, shall I? Should I, uh, if you're not going to be happy with animals, should I give my firstborn? Is that what God wants? Well, certainly not. In fact, it's an abomination to God. Uh, we learn that in, uh, among other places, in Deuteronomy 18.10. And actually, that's what the Canaanites around them did. That was the pagan practice. And this is not just conjecture. In fact, in, we read in, uh, in 2 Kings 16.3 that during Micah's lifetime, during the reign of the king Ahaz, Ahaz sacrifices his son uh, as, a, uh, as an offering. And so this, is, this is detestable. So the, the answer here is assuredly no. God, God doesn't want that. Well, then what, is, what does God require? And you can imagine if, if the people are, are thinking that this is, these are the things that God wants. Well, he wants the, all he wants is the, the highest quality sacrifice, or he wants the highest quantity sacrifice, or he wants my child. I give that to him. You can imagine why they say, this is wearisome. Like, I don't, um, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. But God says, no, it was never, it was never about those Things. He says, he's told you, oh man, that is, oh human being. Actually, the word is, um, the word here is Adam. He's told you, oh, oh human, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? Three things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I think ultimately what this whole section is communicating is that God doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your, uh, your outward conformity. Uh, he wants your heart. He wants your worship, not your acts of worship. He wants the actual worship of your heart. So it isn't that God didn't want Israel to to perform the sacrifices. He clearly did, or he wouldn't have commanded it in the law. The problem is that the sacrifices were supposed to be expressions of the heart, expressions that the heart worshiped God. And so it was never just the bare offering of a sacrifice that was supposed to, to, to cover over somebody's sin or to, to ritually cleanse them. It was the faith with which the, the worshiper brought the sacrifice that made it effective, the faith in God's promise, simply bringing sacrifices and, and slaying them, that wasn't doing anything. Um, we see, a, I think, a similarity here in the way that some people think about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right? It was like, well, if I just do it, if I just get baptized or I baptize my, my child, uh, or if I just make sure I take the Lord's Supper, then I'm, I'm covered. Just something in the act of doing it itself conveys forgiveness, conveys grace. And, and that's, that's not the case. Those things don't mean anything if they're not done with faith. So I think that's very similar to what God is saying here. He's like, it's, it's not the, the sacrifices in and of themselves I want. I want your heart. And if I have your heart, then you're going to do what I command, which includes worshiping me the way that I've laid out. So I, I think it's not about God doesn't want 
outward religion. I think he does. But it has to be accompanied first and foremost by inward religion, by a heart that's set on worshiping God. So he says these three ideas, do justice, love kindness, I'll come with your God. So uh, the way that I uh, kind of sum this up was right actions, right affections, and right relationship. I didn't uh, use the thesaurus to come up with another A word. Um, if I'd had a little more time, maybe I would have. Don't tell Tom that I didn't come up with it. He's big on the alliterations. Um, so right actions, right affections, right relationship. So what does God want? Well, he, wants, he wants right actions. It's not that God doesn't want you to do the right thing. He does want you to do the right thing. Um, do justice, particularly right actions related to doing what is right uh, in regard to your neighbor. Right? Uh, doing what is right and just with other people. It's caring for the vulnerable and the oppressed. We see this is, is in the law. Um, the, the Ten Commandments kind of split into two parts. One is about specifically about loving God. The other is about loving your neighbor, which is an expression of your love for God. Right? And this is why Jesus says the two greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the, really the entirety of the, the law is about how to, to practically love God and love your neighbor well, because we don't naturally think, oh, I know exactly how to love God and love my neighbor, so he gives us some instructions. And so this first one, this right, right actions to do justice uh, deals specifically with how do I relate in a very practical, tangible way to the people around me? How do my, how do my actions show my love for them? And actually, this is really just what, what God himself does. He says in Deuteronomy uh, 10, 18, that he, he cares for the, the orphan and the widow and the sojourner, the one who is, who is vulnerable. He does justice for them is the terminology. Um, actually, all of verse 8, I forgot to mention, if you go to Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, you actually get a very similar um, uh, statement of what God requires of his people. So it's almost like Micah is sort of playing off of that. This is what God has always required. And you know this because it was in the law. It's right actions. Then love kindness. So I said um, right affections. The word uh, kindness is... Um, the same word that's translated in some of your translations, loving kindness or steadfast love or loyal love. It's this word, this Hebrew word, hesed, which is very, very difficult to translate in English because it has so many nuances and connotations, but it's basically um, this faithful covenant love, uh, this um, this this unconditional covenant love that God has for his people and then that those who are in his covenant are supposed to extend to others as well. 
Now, what's interesting is that most of the time in the Old Testament, this idea of kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love uh, is something that is practiced, right? The Lord demonstrates steadfast love. Uh, it's, it's not something that is loved. Um, it's not, that, that's not usually the, the command. The command is usually to act in this way, not love this. And so this is moving from the outward to the inward. You, li- you love things on the inside with right affections. That gets demonstrated in the way that you actually act. But I think what God is saying here is not only do I want you to do right things, I want you to think and feel right things so that you do the right things for the right reasons. It's outward conformity is not enough. There needs to be inward conformity too. It can't just be outward conformity. Your heart has to change. Your heart has to be in it. I don't want you to just do justice even though you, uh, you hate doing it, but you do it because God said so. I don't want to do it. I want you to, I want you to love doing it and therefore do it. That's where things start to get harder because it's a lot harder to change the way we feel and the way we think than what we do, right? We can come up with ways to to change what we do. It's harder to change the way we feel. But then ultimately, this all flows from this third one, to walk humbly with your God, the right relationship to the only way that you're going to have right affections and right actions is if you have a right relationship with God, if you walk in fellowship with God. Uh, and so there, there's a sense in which um, you might look at these things as sort of like concentric circles. Imagine those are actually circles and not, I don't know what shape that is. Um, so at the center is walking humbly with God. And if you walk humbly with God, you're going to love the things He loves. You're going to love kindness. And if you love what He loves, then you'll do what He does. Right? So if you're in a right relationship with God, you'll, you'll love what He loves. And if you love what He loves, you'll do what He does. And these are not one-time deals. But part of the problem uh, with some of what I think the Israelites are struggling with here is they're, they're looking at, in verses 6 and 7, they're looking at, okay, just tell, what, what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. I'll, I'll do it. You know, do, does he want a yearling calf? Done. I'll do, I'll do it. Thousands of rams? Uh, sure, we'll make that happen. Firstborn? Okay, we'll do that. Well, how many times can you sacrifice your firstborn? It's not a trick question. The answer is one. So they're, they're, looking, they're looking for what's the thing I can do What's the thing I can do to, to get out from under this, this judgment? What's the thing I can do to be right with God? And God's saying, it's not the thing you do. This is, we're talking about an ongoing way of life. We're not talking about this one time. Well, if I can walk humbly with my God this one time, everything's going to be set. No, you, you walk humbly with your God as a way of life. You are not just entering a, a right relationship with God, and then you can do whatever you want. You, you stay in a right relationship with God. Now, not because we try hard to do that, right? He, he keeps us, but it has this ongoing effect. 
But God is looking for us to, based on our relationship with Him and the way that He changes our hearts, looking for us to become obedient from the heart. Uh, let's look at somewhere like Romans 6, 17. Paul says, Thanks be to God that you were slaves, uh, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, that form of teaching to which you were committed. Same thing in Ephesians 6. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And so he's saying to these, these slaves or these bond servants, you can, you can do this because ultimately you belong to me. Because you belong to me, you can, you can do the right thing, but you can do it from the inside out. You can do it from the heart because your heart has changed. And I'm, and I'm cleaning it out of all of the sin and junk. I think that's what verse 8 is getting at. That God, is, God doesn't want just religious performance. He wants, he wants our heart.